Listener Production. All right. <clears throat> Fats Batula. Fats Batula. Fats Batula. I'm positively bedeviled with meetings. Etc. Etc. Okay, are we ready? <laughs> yes. Damn, wait, should I try and do it as um, Moira? <clears throat> Take it away, my dulcet toned Adonis. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Seriously, that take it away. That was commanding too. I like that. Okay. Um, <laughs> hello, Gistners. <laughs> and welcome back for another episode of Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast where we give you just the gist of what you need to know about a topic we think you'll find interesting enough to share with friends at a dinner party. I am here with Rosie Waterland. My name is Jacob Stanley. Did I already say those things? I cannot no, remember. You, no, you just said it now. That was very okay. well done on introducing us. And you know what I'm just noticing, noticing as you're doing this? when Because we do this over Zoom or whatever the mm. thing is, the video thing, and um, your camera's really close up to your face today, but mine's further back. I know, mm. but it's because I do it because like to minimise my chins, but um, mm-hmm. it kind of is making me feel like you have a giant head. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not saying you have to move. I'm just saying it's a very f- handsome head. Yeah, whoa, okay. <laughs> okay, settle down. <laughs> anyway, hello. Hello, how are you, darling? I'm good. Um, how's things? You're back in, um, where are you? Sunny Coast. Yes, um, came back to see my friends and loved ones, and it was a huge mistake because it's <laughs> thirteen degrees and pissing oh. with rain here. I thought you meant because they suck. <laughs> oh well, that's a contributing factor, but mm. honestly, it's very jarring to go from you know thirty-five degree tropical heat to all of a sudden mm. this wintry nonsense. How are things down there? Oh, you know, it's Adelaide. Adelaide. That's it's mm. just Adelaide. What are it? <laughs> City of churches and et cetera. I don't. There you go. And hazardous bike riders, I understand, <laughs> on the <Yes>. footpaths. <laughs> Apparently. Um, nope, I lost it. Oh, we're off to a good start. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I haven't even had any fruit wine. Uh-huh. What's your it's topic still on this its week? Way. Uh, This week, I'm going to tell you a story about a woman called Tanya who became the face of 9-11 survivors after the World Trade Center attacks back in 2001. Mm. She had this outlandish claim that she had just barely escaped from the South Tower and also that her fiancé had died in the Mm. North Tower. And out of everyone who'd escaped the towers, hers was the most traumatic which meant that it was sort of easy for her to kind of emerge as the most triumphant and resilient symbol of what it means to be a survivor. Yeah. Um, And for years she was sort of held up as this national symbol of hope and she was an advocate and she was considered a hero. And then in 2007 it was revealed that she had actually never, (gasps) ever been to the World Trade Centre ever and Ah! her whole story had just been one big fat lie. Oh, I love female scammers. It oh, is this is a present just for me. So. Oh, You'll enjoy what a nutter. I love female <laughs> scammers. Even I've been to the, well, I've been to the World Trade Center site, mm. what it is now. But before we get into that, let's get into some. Breaking news, breaking news. I got the scoop. See, extra, extra, read all about it. Breaking news. Okay. 
Okay, this is hot off the presses, fresh breaking news because this wasn't even on my list, but then someone tagged us in it literally like two seconds before I came on air. So our favourite girl, Anna Delvey, is the one who, you know, pretended to be an heiress and she recently got parole. She put up this Mm. Instagram post. Oh, my God, I love her so much. She's acting like she's a powerful, busy, important businesswoman, but she's in prison. (laughs) Listen to this. Yeah. (laughs) Hi, guys. Thanks for all the letters and words of support. I appreciate it but please do not show up here to visit me unannounced. I am not making the same mistake of not checking the visitor's identity again, and I won't be accepting any visits from names I don't recognise. So the days of hoping to catch me (laughs) slipping are over, and all you're achieving by coming here is wasting your time and interfering with my sleeping schedule. I'm kind of busy and showing up here at 8am on a Sunday morning slash New Year's Day slash any day is not the way. No, I haven't gotten fat or shaved my head and no, I'm not lonely or in dire need of your company. And if you did happen to get in touch with me in the past, but I didn't explicitly say I want you to come see me, it means I don't want you to come see me. This is in prison, by the way. I feel like I need to just point that out. If you feel like you have something interesting to say, you can email me at anadelvidiaries at gmail.com. Write me a letter at Albion, which is her prison, or send me a DM on IG. And if I want to talk to you, be assured that I will find a way to get back to you. Kiss, kiss, Anna. Stop turning up uninterrupted to Anna's prison. You're interrupting her sleeping schedule. She's kind of busy with her snooze regime. Oh, my she gosh. Is. And a few weeks ago, the actress playing her in the TV show went to visit her. So I guess she's also busy having important Hollywood meetings. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's all happening for her right now. Mm. Do you think this is just a cry for attention and a sort of uh, semi-subtle way to put her email address out there for anyone oh. who's interested in getting in contact? Okay, yeah, good. Absolutely. <laughs> She's super smart. She's super savvy. She does funny stuff all the time. Like like the post before this one was a little sketch she drew where she was pretending to be on the phone with Donald Trump asking him how she can um, only pay $750 in tax like him. Oh, God. Like she's t- <laughs> I think she's like, if nothing else, like a marketing genius. You know what I mean? Like Slash. she's definitely yeah. smart at something. And like mm-hmm. we say with all the scammers, if you took that, genius and ingenuity and determination and applied it to just actually working hard at something, then you would be successful. Mm. But none of them want to work hard. That's the that's their downfall, the working hard part. <sighs> that's an interesting thought for you to keep in mind when I get into telling my story. But I think she, yes, she's great at marketing. She's also a performance artist. This has yes. all just become one big installation for her that we get to watch. She's putting on a show. Yeah, she is. Anna Delvey is like a work of art now. It's funny. So, yeah, that literally just someone tagged us in that like 10 minutes ago and I saw it. Timeless. So, you know, the guys, oh, this is a week for scammers. Do you remember the guy who did um, the Firefest thing? Yeah, yeah, you yeah, yeah. The Fire Festival and it was just a festival based on nonsense and mm-hmm. scams. Um, so he got sent to prison and then there was those two documentaries about Firefest one in which um, there was that famous scene in which the 
gay man who was uh, one of the higher-ups on the team admitted that he was sent to try and bribe a government worker to provide them with water by, you know... That's right. I forgot yes. about that. Yeah. And he admitted <laughs> in the documentary that like he literally was driving there thinking I'm going to do it. I'm about to, you know, give mm-hmm. a dude a mm-hmm. good time. A service. In, ex- mm. in exchange for water because that is how desperate we are to like this festival's falling apart. But then he got there and he was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then, and like, uh, the dude had sent him in to do it, but then the government official was like, oh, of course we'll give you water. We're not going to let people die of thirst at your festival. And he walked away going, if he hadn't just given me that water, would I have, <laughs> like, what was I just He learned a lot about do? himself that day. He did, but he actually <laughs> ended up becoming quite famous from that documentary just for being so open about it and being like, I, yeah. this is how in like invested in this and how deep in it I was. I did anyway. This isn't even about him, but um, when you talk about Firefest, you just can't really not talk about that dude. But um, the guy who did the whole Firefest thing, I forget his name, something Mc, Billy McFarlane. He mm. got sent to solitary confinement in prison last week because he started a podcast. <laughs> So he, uh, in connection with some kind of um, production company, so imagine if it was Podcast One. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's still, that, like they, you know, started calling him in prison and they mm. said, would you want to host a podcast about everything that happened to do with Firefest? And, like, we'll just mm. call you and we'll record it over the phone. And he was like, okay. Mm. So they recorded this first episode of um, his podcast called Dumpster Fire. And um, (laughs) fire spelt the same way as Firefest. And it went out Uh and it got published. And then the prison was like, excuse me, hold on. (laughs) You can't do that. So he got busted. And then as far as I know, the podcast got taken down because I did try and look for Uh it and I couldn't find it. And people who did listen to it, who wrote about it, said that um, he did admit to, like, wrongdoing. He was like, yes, like, Mm. I... I do feel really bad that a lot of people got, you know, lost money or whatever, but he still much like, um, you know, our favourite. Anna Delvey. Anna Delvey. Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, and Elizabeth Holmes, but I was just reaching for the stars and, you know, I may have missed, but it wasn't intentionally fraudulent. I just didn't quite get there, you know, like that was kind of, so apparently he's still making excuses and also blaming other people saying, you know, other people, like I guess Jarul was it Jarul he did it with or something like I don't know so <laughs> fifty cent one of him, them yeah. him and Anna Delvey and like what even is life these days what is our culture where people can just literally do something so criminal that they end up in prison and then they pivot by making themselves a, a ridiculous piece of performance art like if you have no shame. Mm. You can do anything. You can become a cultural icon. Yeah. Yeah. Because we love to watch that sort of thing. We love scandals and we love people who are so far away from the mainstream. Oh, yeah. If you can find his podcast, please share it with everyone, but especially me because I'm so keen. Mm. And like anything Anna Delvey does when she gets out of jail, I am here for it. Like Mm. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm not like a diehard 
fan, but in terms of like things you ironically love, like I'm obsessed with her. Mm. And I think she's smart and he's smart too. I think he's figuring it out too that you're going to have people who genuinely are into you or whatever, but the real win is when you realise that you've got people who love to love you ironically and you figure Mm. that out and you tap into it. Yes. That whole sort of from shame to fame uh, Mm. transition that people have really learned how to harness, that would actually be something interesting for us to revisit at the end of this episode because there is still Mm. probably the potential that this particular woman could make that kind of comeback should she want to. Yeah. Oh, all my um, breaking news is so accidentally um, relevant to your topic. (laughs) And speaking of, okay, I... A lot of people ask me to talk about this and it's quite a big thing, so I'm not sure if we have time. I'll keep it as short as possible because this is breaking news. But speaking Mm. of shooting for the stars and only hitting, you know, the top deck of your carport (laughs) is (laughs) the tale of Quibi. (laughs) Quibi, Quibi, Quibi. Now, you know that I've been obsessed with Quibi for what? months like I was talking to you about this like six months ago yeah like easily yeah like so Quibi was this was because it's dead Quibi was Mm. a streaming service so like Stan like Netflix like whatever it was started by Jeff I think his name's Jeff Katzenberg. Yes, the guy who Mm -hmm. used to be the president of DreamWorks like he you know was responsible for I think the Lion King, was it? Or no, Toy Story, Toy Story, like all this crazy stuff. He just mm. is like, he was at Disney and then he did DreamWorks. And mm-hmm. then also um, Meg Whitman, who was like the CEO of eBay and she was huge as well. And they're both in like their 60s and they got together and they were like, we know what the kids want and no one can tell us otherwise. The kids are all watching TikTok and the YouTubes and the other things on their phone. Mm-hmm. And they were like, so why don't we make high quality content for the kids on their phone? Like completely missing the mark because the thing that's great mm-hmm. about TikTok is it's these spontaneous, like unexpected bits of brilliance from people who are just doing it in their houses. And if you're watching a prestige show, you want to watch it on your TV. Like you don't, anyway. Mm-hmm. I've got so many issues with it. So that was the plan. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. and part of that plan was also they weren't going to make any show longer than 10 minutes. So every show had to be 10 minutes. So they even made a bunch of movies that only let you watch them in 10 minute intervals. Increments. Mm. Increments. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, um, professor. <laughs> um, and <laughs> can you believe I studied writing professionally? <laughs> <laughs> Because of who he was and who she was, they raised $3 billion in investment money, like including like a huge amount of money from Australia's government investment fund invested $50 million in it. Yeah, like because it seemed like it couldn't fail. It was like this guy is a visionary of content and this woman has been CEO of all these major companies and together they can't fail. And no one watched it. No one wanted it. So because they're old, I think they didn't quite realise, like, so, for example, someone who worked at the company said that every day Jeffrey Katzenberg had all his emails printed out onto pieces of paper and read them, like, in hard copy. <laughs> and, oh, like, 
And someone asked Meg Whitman once in an interview, also, what kind of TV do you like to watch? And she said, oh, I don't really watch TV. And then oh. said the last thing that she'd watched was some documentary about some old president like six months ago. So they were people who didn't really understand content, didn't really understand what kids wanted to watch, didn't really understand how they wanted to watch it. Anyway, all that is to say it was a terrible idea and after less than six months, Quibi announced last week that they were shutting down. Of the $3 billion people invested, they only had $300 million left. So a lot of people have lost a lot of money. A lot of people are really embarrassed. He looks like a fool, but he's saying that it wasn't his fault. It wasn't a bad idea. It's because he launched a streaming service meant to be watched on your phone while you're on the go when COVID happened and no one was on the go anymore and everyone was at home. Victim of circumstance. Also, at the start of COVID, people said to him, well, look, people aren't on the go, so why don't you um, just put it into the app that people can stream it to their televisions? And he said, no, phone only. (laughs) The kids do it on the phone. (laughs) So it was just hubris and that is an example of people like Elizabeth Holmes, people like Billy McFarlane, people like Anna Delvey, like, They're called fraudsters because they start off small, but he's Mm. not called a fraudster. He's just called, you know, a genius bazillionaire businessman who made a few mistakes. Mm. But essentially he's done the same thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, he swindled a lot of people's money, right? He did. They're not getting those dollars back, yeah. Mm. And it was all based on this idea that he had that something was going to work when he had no evidence to No, back he just decided it. He just and it's exactly like Elizabeth Holmes. He just decided it would work. Mm. Like so how funny that he's not gonna get he hasn't done anything criminally wrong, even though he's kind of mm. done the same thing that Elizabeth Holmes did. Uh, and that Anna Delvey did and that Billy McFarlane did. It's crazy. <laughs> if anything, my favorite show on the whole platform was a show called Dishmantled, where um, and hosted by Titus Burgess. No, not Titus. Who's the guy from? Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Yes. And 30 so Rock. It's called, yeah. yeah, it's called Dishmantled, hosted by Titus, and chefs stand in a room and have a dish of food blasted at their face out of a cannon and then <laughs> tasting the food around their face and feeling the food around their face. They have to recreate the dish. That got blasted into their face from a cannon. Dishmantled. Yes, yeah, see? Gold. Okay. Oh, if only I'm getting Katzenberg on that. hadn't been so terrible at understanding how to release that content. That's content people want to watch. Yes. Like if that was on TikTok, it would be huge. But because he put it on stupid Quibi, ugh, what a loss. What a loss to the industry dismantled is. I hope it gets picked uh, up elsewhere. Yeah, it'll find a new home. It'll end up where it's meant to be, I'm sure, yes. and it will go viral, which it was clearly meant to from the very beginning. That's fantastic. <laughs> so there was a story in Junkie this last week that got republished by the um, writer called Rob Stott because it was the um, anniversary of when 12 years ago some staff member at the Coogee Bay Hotel put poop into somebody's gelato. <laughs> Do you remember yes. this? 
So I, I lived had, in Coogee for all that time, so yeah, I know. I, really I thought do. that's when you were living there at the time. I had no idea this happened, but there was this huge drama at the Coogee Bay Hotel back in 2008 when it first reopened after being like renovated or shut for a while or something. Mm. And um, this woman complained about the cost of the gelato, and the manager came because it was apparently like twenty bucks or something. And the manager came out and said, oh, I'm so sorry, you're right, we'll bring you a complimentary bowl of gelato. And her and her family all dipped into the gelato and she was the only one who dipped into the chocolate part of the gelato and the second she put it in her mouth, it was immediately obvious to her that it was human poop. Fecal matter. Oh. Yes. And um, Rob Stott, this really funny um, writer at Junkie, basically did like a breakdown of the whole saga. <laughs> and um, I was, I'd never heard of it happening. And um, his article just takes you through the whole drama. And like, it's the funniest thing I've ever read. I couldn't stop laughing. So I, I'll put the link in the show notes, but you've got to go read this junkie article about the time a woman ate human poo at the Coogee Bay Hotel and they never found out who the culprit was. She, they ended up getting paid some kind of settlement, I think, because it was in, you know, it went back and forth in court and um, but they never knew who put the poop in the gelato bowl at the Coogee Bay Hotel. <laughs> and to this day it remains a mystery. <gasps> Unsolved. Oh, wow. I can't That's believe you were living the there at the time and I've never heard about it. I'm so amazed that you haven't heard about this. I feel like that's one of those sort of um, zeitgeisty jokes that people constantly make it. Whenever anyone mentions Coogee, yeah, they no. start cracking wise about chocolate ice cream, eh, eh, eh. And the thing that it's- I couldn't stop laughing at was um, the cover of the Daily Telegraph at the time just had this woman's, like, horrified face and a giant photo of a bowl of gelato and the headline was, it was poo. <laughs> <laughs> Heard of this. So um, that's my other recommendation. Link in the show notes. Because as always, I cover the classy news. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought, the way that I thought it had landed was that that woman had taken some of the ice cream home, mixed poo in it at home, and then was making this claim and trying to sue the Coogee Bay Hotel and it was all a big fraud. I've got this, I've got Rob Stott's story right here. And you know what? I'm going to quote to you a little from it. Yeah. As you'd expect, a mum eating human shit in a restaurant caused quite a stir. There was a heated argument, which according to the Herald made its way back to the hotel's kitchen. Over the next few weeks, Claims and counterclaims flew between the Whites, that's the family, and the hotel's management as the lawyers were called in. In a letter, the hotel suggested the incident may have been an act of industrial sabotage by a competitor. The police were called. (laughs) The food authority stepped in to investigate. The Whites took their own sample to the National Measurements Institute, an actual government body for an independent analysis. Retired federal court judge Trevor Morling QC was brought in to broker a peace deal between warring parties. (laughs) Much of this was taking place quietly as the two parties looked to come to some sort of resolution, but then the shit really hit the fan. Ah, well done, Robert. Oh, this is such a good story. Oh, this is my favourite part. It was a classic poo-done-it. (laughs) CCTV footage 
called the White's moment of horror when the restaurant's manager personally delivered the gelato. The Whites made several media appearances insisting that this dispute wasn't about money. All they wanted was an apology and an admission of wrongdoing. The real issue is that we were fed, as a family, shit at someone's pub, (laughs) Stephen White told radio station 2UE. Um, The hotel fought back, saying that they were just trying to get money, and it just became a really famous story, and they ended up settling, but nobody knows who did it. (laughs) Rob Stott. (laughs) Take a bow. Classic poo done it. (laughs) Slow clap. Put the link in the show notes on Junkie. <laughs> oh, I'll never be able to beat that. Wow. And that was Breaking News. Alrighty. Tell us about one of my favourite topics in the whole world, a female scammer. Yee-haw. Let's go. All right. I'm calling this one, oh, the mendacity, the egregious prevarications of Tanya slash Alicia Head. Did you take that from, like, the Moira Rose book of vocabulary? (laughs) It's somewhat inspired by her. I don't know if she's used those particular terms. But, um, yes, this is all about lies, 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 lies. And it's Mm -hmm, very mm -hmm. Belle Gibson, which is one of, I think, the most fascinating Mm. stories that you've ever told me. Yes. Um, But the biggest difference between the two of them is that Tanya didn't actually make any sort of personal profit out of this. This was Mm. not about her making any sort of money. If anything, it just seems to have been about her building human connections for the first time in her life and then kind Mm. of getting high off the fame and recognition that she was getting as well. It makes you feel so ambivalent, doesn't it? Okay, get into it. Yeah. It's a tricky one because Mm. you can sort of see in this one that there's definite signs of mental illness. Um, and I can't remember if Belle Gibson was like this, but Tanya genuinely did seem to believe her own lies. Like she had fabricated the truth Ah. in such vivid detail that she immersed herself in it and actually lived in it for several years. I think Belle Gibson did in the end, like in that book I read about her, um, she was having fits that lasted like half an hour and you can't do that unless you have like physical seizures so you can't mm. do that and fake that unless you truly like are a bit, you've gone a bit off the deep end yeah. in terms of how committed you are to the lie. Pseudologia fantastica, I think is what they call it. That's oh. like the clinical term for when you're a pathological liar who comes to actually believe everything mm. that they're saying over time. Each time they repeat it, they just reinforce it in their mind as their own little version of reality. Oh, my God. I look like, I look like Miranda Kerr. I look like Miranda Kerr. I look like Miranda Kerr. I wonder if that works. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, go. Mind over matter. Okay. Mind over matter. Um, So all of this started on an online forum on Yahoo groups about 18 months after the September 11th attacks in 2001. And a group was formed that was called the World Trade Center United Family Group. And it was kind of like an online emotional support group for people who had nowhere else to turn to someone else who'd had a similar experience to them if they had actually survived the attacks, if they'd been there at ground zero when it happened and they'd survived. So, Mm. and then in 
2003, a woman called Tanya put up her very first post. And to begin with, it was very vague. She just said that she was in Tower 2 and that she'd escaped. And she got this instant outpouring of sympathy and lots of welcoming messages from people. And that was enough encouragement for her to then continue to post more and more and to sort of drip feed more and more detail to people. And I guess also it's important to remember that this was a time where, and particularly probably people of this age, like of the age that were in this chat room, had never really experienced an online community before. So when you say Mm. she came in and was immediately welcomed and immediately met with love and support and no ounce of suspicion, it's because nobody even considered that would be a possible thing back then. Chat rooms Mm -hmm. and support groups online were so new. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like just so um, ripe for naivete. Like we were talking about Blair Witch last week, like people just didn't have online literacy yet to that yes. extent. Exactly. They were very malleable, very easy to manipulate. It was also even easier back then to remain anonymous than it is yes. today because, of course, social media had not been created yet. Mm. So no one questioned the validity of her stories as they started to get more and more detailed and vivid and lurid. And she would talk about the fact that she'd had to climb over people's dismembered body parts. And at one point she had to climb over a pile of dead bodies. Mm. Then she started talking about the fact that she'd lost her fiancé in Tower One. And then it sort of built up to this crescendo where she wrote out the entire story from beginning to end in very, very gory detail. And it was way more extreme than anything anyone else in the group had ever experienced. Yeah, so I'll break it down for you. I don't have the actual excerpt, but um, But from start to finish, she said that she was working for Merrill Lynch on the 78th floor Uh, of the South Tower. Which is a very famous name that everybody knew and attached with 9-11 because, yeah, okay. mm Mm-hmm. And then she'd heard the noise of the first plane hitting the North Tower, looked out the window and saw that it was going up in flames. She immediately thought of her fiancé who was over in the North Tower and started counting the floors from the top down to see if he was on one of the affected floors. And because he was on the 100th floor, he was definitely on one of the floors that the plane had collided with. Mm -hmm. And as she was starting to come to terms with that, someone started screaming, there's another plane coming. And then before she knew it, massive explosion as the second plane collided with the South Tower. She said that she just remembered the air being sucked out of her lungs and she went flying through the air, hit a marble wall, felt this intense heat and then just passed out. And then when she finally came to, she could feel her back and her arm were on fire and she could smell her own skin cooking, started panicking. And then a man wearing a red bandana, whose name is Wells Crowther, and we'll talk about him a little bit later on, Uh came along and extinguished the flames that were on her, hugged her, told her, just stay awake, just stay awake. He went and found a fireman to come and carry her to safety. As the fireman had her in his arms, a dying man reached out to her and begged, can you please take my wedding ring and give it back? Back to my wife. She took the ring and the fireman took her downstairs, managed to roll her underneath a fire truck to I say, like I I'm, know. I'm on the verge of laughing only because I know it's not real, but it, it right. sounds so fantastical and ridiculous. Uh, yes. Okay, keep going. And as you will see, this is kind of the beginning. She continues to swing bigger and bigger and bigger, but yeah. we're not even finished with the first iteration okay, of yeah. the story yet. 
I'm the fireman it. rolled her under a fire truck just before Tower 2 collapsed. She passed out. She didn't wake up for another six days. When she did wake up, she was in a hospital. She was told that her fiancé, Dave, had died. She was completely bereft and she was totally immobile until around Thanksgiving. So all she could do was sit around thinking, why me? What plan does God possibly have for me if he's saved yeah. only me and 19 other people who were at or above? above the point of impact on that tower. And then she decided that her purpose in life was going to be to help others. She got out of hospital and she returned the wedding ring to the widow and it renewed her um, sense of hope. Question. That's a pretty big swing to take saying you are one of the 19 people who survived that acute impact point Mm -hmm. because wouldn't those people be... You can't really fake that factual detail. That's so right. So she's, yes. she's taken big swing. Okay. Okay. Yep. And because she swung so big, it seems like everyone just went, well, no one would possibly ever right? be so bold to lie about that in such a huge way. So she returns um, the wedding ring. She returned the wedding ring and she found her purpose again. That no was photos, obviously. Other survivors. Oh, no. <laughs> There's no evidence of, of anything. Of the event. No, yeah. And so she said she was just there to join the group, not to get attention and sympathy for herself, but just to very graciously help others with piecing their life back together the way that she had because she had found a way to find her own purpose once again. Right. Okay. So straight away from the beginning, she managed to make sure that all of the other survivors felt like their story of survival was inferior to hers. Yes. And that was something that if she ever got pissed at someone, she would lash out at them and remind them that her story was way more traumatic than anything that they had experienced. Anyway, she quickly became this sort of pillar of the online community because she wasn't actually working, even though she told everyone she was still employed full time. She dedicated herself completely to all of the stuff that she was doing for this little online support group. And people did love her. She inspired them and showed them what it meant to be a survivor. And she just sort of characterized herself as this beneficent angel and kept acting very, very humble. And I'm just here to serve all of you. While at the same time, obviously, she was acting very much like a vampire, just sucking off the sympathy that she was getting from everyone else anytime she would put her agony out on display. So when you say she was saying, I'm, you know, I'm just here to serve you, I'm here to help, what was she doing? Like People, oh, when they would tell their stories, then she yeah. would obviously spend a lot of time listening to them, comforting oh, them. Oh, okay, so just providing comfort a virtual shoulder to lean on, it's that like just, okay. So that's not really doing anything, anything. It then started to become a lot more tangible after that because she started organising some in-person gatherings of all the members Uh. of the group. Um, But even at those gatherings, she'd go so far as to actually act out flashbacks. So sort of like, I guess, Belle Gibson with having her seizures in front of people, she would have these massive flashbacks in front of people. So she made it feel very, very, very real. As someone who has PTSD and who has experienced and occasionally still experiences flashbacks, that's not how they work. <laughs> it's mm. not a movie that you think you're in the middle of a movie. <clears throat> it that's not how it works, darling. But okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's funny. 
she managed to convince them somehow. Anyway, because her story was so special and unique you, and extreme, oh, she. But don't you wish you were there for those? Like, I wonder if she was just performing like really dramatic monologues. Like, I, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, what was she doing? My arms yeah. on fire! Woo! Yes, I'll give the ring to your fiance. Bless you, fireman. Like, I what? How was she doing it? I wonder. Oh, <gasps> uh, I can't even begin to imagine. It would oh, have God. been really hard Heaven. to watch, I'm sure. Yeah, it would have been because re- uh. people who aren't acting's hard. If you're not a good actor, mm. it's so obvious. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So her super intense story brought her to the attention of the World Trade Center Survivors Network, which had about 500 members. The guy who'd founded it, his name was Jerry. He arranged to meet with her one-on-one. He really liked her and he really felt for her. But from the very beginning, he had some doubts because she Mm. showed him her scars and he sort of went, "Mm, they don't look like burn scars on your arm there. But of course, he felt like it would just be really cruel to question her about it. And he, if anything, beat himself up for being so cynical. How brazen to show scars, like just wear long sleeves and say you're not comfortable, you're like, (laughs) why are you Mm. showing scars that aren't real? Oh, my God. Okay. Yes. Um, He came to actually feel really protective of her and he said, look, I really want to sort of merge your organisation online with our organisation, which she agreed to do. And that meant that they could start organising bigger and bigger meetings with more than a thousand members in the group by now. And they could do more and more things for the survivors. And straight away, Tanya was the darling because she had the most extreme example of what it meant to be a survivor. She was a member of the board and she became the public face of the organization because Uh she represented what it was to be a survivor and what it was to be a widow and what it was to be an activist on behalf of the group. Um, And she was very charming and charismatic and energetic and people were really drawn to her. And she she seemed to only be doing things for other people. She's um, quite heavy set and she Mm -hmm. had relatively short hair. Um, I'll post some pictures of her on the Just The Gist Instagram so that you can see what she looked like in the early stages and what she looks like now as well just in case you ever spot her on the street. Because I'm just Um, interested to see, like, some people do have the benefit of just having a kind of face or look about them that you are drawn to them and feel you can trust mm. them and, like, that would have helped if she appeared that way, you know? She laughed very easily. She was very sort of smiley. She was quite cuddly. She was very warm. She Mm. had this endearing Spanish accent. So, yeah, she managed to charm people quite easily. So no one was questioning her at all. And in the meantime, she was doing some genuinely, objectively good things. She got the Survivors Network registered as an official official organisation for the first time. Yeah. And she got them state funding and she organised for all the members to go and visit Ground Zero for the very first time so that they could grieve there, which was really important to them. So it Um, sounds like faking or not, she's genuinely found some kind of purpose to her life mm-hmm. and has really grabbed it with both hands and is yeah pushing ahead yeah. with it. Yeah, the, okay. The organisation objectively was better off because of the work that she did for them. She raised a lot of money for them. She also donated a huge amount of her money to the group as well. She was Mm -hmm. making no profit out of this. Um, And most importantly, a lot of people acknowledge the fact that 
she inspired them to put in the effort to overcome the trauma that they had gone through and start piecing their life back together. She gave people a sense of hope that they thought that they had lost because of what it was that they'd witnessed on September 11th. What she went through was so terrible. If she can overcome her trauma and hers is worse than mine, then I can. Yeah. (gasps) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Then she started to really shine the light on the fiancé that she'd lost. So a big part of her story was the fact that Dave had died in the North Tower and she would tell people about their love story, which was that they met out the front of the World Trade Centre one night when he stole her cab. She was so angry at him, but he just kept flirting with her and insisting that they would go out on a date. They did and they fell in love and they moved in together and then they eloped to Hawaii and she had a very, very detailed fairy tale type story about how that came to be. Mm -hmm. She came home stressed from work one night and she walked in the door and there was a trail of rose petals leading into the kitchen where Dave was standing there wearing a coconut bra and dancing the hula and he presented her with two tickets to fly to Maui the very next day and when they got there he'd had a white dress made for her he'd sent over her measurements in advance and he'd flown in her parents from California but not his own parents I can't tell if I think this sounds fake because I know it's fake or if I was if she was telling me this story if I would believe it I can't tell uh, I think give, it might just be because you and I have talked in the past about the fact that we went to high school with people who would come yeah. up with these wild, unbelievable stories that you knew were fake, but you would very mm. rarely call the person out on it, either because it would just sort of be too awkward or because you were scared that they were going to lash out in some way. So you would just sort yeah, of let that's them true. have let the them story. Everyone mm. knows, everyone went to high school with one like that or has met one since. Mm. And not only do they mm-hmm. tell fantastical lies and stories, but they're also what I always like to call, and it sounds like she is to a story topper. Like it doesn't matter mm. what your story is, they have a story to top it. And I remember mm-hmm. there being one girl when I was quite young um, who when she found out that, you know, that my parents were addicts and I was you know, sometimes in foster care and then sometimes living, you know, with family members and I'd, you know, had this kind of life. I remember she started talking about how um, she had been adopted from a war-torn country and, like, it was just, <laughs> it's like, this isn't, this isn't a story you want to top. <laughs> it's not glamorous, you know what I mean? But, yeah, I think some yeah. people just can't help it. Yeah, she just couldn't resist. Ugh. Um, and the thing with Tanya as well is she kept topping her own stories because no <laughs> one had a story more extreme than her. She would go on to add in another layer of embellishment each time she would tell it. So, of course, this whole story culminates in a circle of orchids on the beach and a civil union ceremony being mm-hmm. performed. And then the next day she delighted in telling people that they called all their friends and said, we got Maui'd yesterday. Um, oh, the detail. Yeah. Oh. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but wouldn't you know it, they never actually filed any paperwork. They never got a marriage license because the official wedding date was going to be October 12th, 2001. And so they were just going to file all their paperwork then. So oh, tragically, there was no record of them being married. But thankfully... She told this tragic tale to a lawyer and the lawyer arranged for a judge to perform a posthumous wedding. (gasps) And so then in the same instance, 
she became a wife and a widow just like that. <gasps> Please yeah. tell me it's a um, while you were sleeping situation and it's a guy that she never met and she just posthumously married someone who had no idea she existed. Oh, my God, please, mm-hmm. please, God. Yes, <laughs> that's correct. Oh yeah, keep, keep going, I'm dying. Yeah, we'll find out later on Dave really truly did exist. It's just that they never happened to meet. Regardless, <gasps> Tanya would every single year on September 11th go and place a toy New York City yellow cab in the reflection pool as a way of reminding Dave that she still loved him and always would. What about his family? Yeah. I got, okay, sorry, keep going. I'm dying. This is so good. Yep. Okay. All right, so just a quick list of some of the embellishments that started to emerge as over the years she would tell the story more and more. Then she started telling people that on the morning of September 11th, she'd got a call from Dave when she was in the South Tower, he was in the North, and he said, hey, babe, do you want to go get a coffee? And she said she couldn't because she had a meeting. And then the first plane struck at 8.46 a.m. So if only she'd said yes to going to get the coffee, they both would have been down on the street and they would have been safe, if only. And then she started telling people that she'd lost her wedding ring during the escape from the tower and so Tiffany replaced it for her for free (gasps) and she would flash the ring around to everyone telling her it was a freebie. Um, She told people that a few weeks after the September 11th attacks, her brother had died and on the same day he died, his wife gave birth to a son that they named Dave because they knew how much Dave meant to Tanya. Whenever, this is classic story topper stuff, whenever anyone would talk about their dog, she would start talking about her pet dog, Elvis, and how outrageous and hilarious he was. But, of course, whenever people would go around to visit her home, Elvis was never there and she'd always just say that the housekeeper was walking him. Um, And then this, I think, is one of the worst things. She disappeared in 2004 and 2005 and told people that she was going to help with um, tsunami relief in Thailand and then um, Hurricane Katrina relief in New Orleans. We don't know where she actually went, but that's what she claimed, that she'd gone off to volunteer um, for those causes, just, again, to try to promote herself as this incredible saint. Mm. And one of her favourite things to do to manipulate people would be to sit there crying her eyes out saying, why me? Why did I survive? Other people had children. Other people had families. Why? Mm. What makes me special? As a way of sort of goading people gently into telling her that she served this really important purpose and she was so critical to the organisation and God yeah. made the right decision to save her. Um The only person who really seemed to have been confused by the fact that no one ever saw a photograph of Dave was a guy called Brad. And he wondered why there was never any proof of Dave's existence. And he started Mm. doing a little bit of digging. He figured out that Dave was a real person who had died in the attacks on the North Tower. And there were lots of online articles and tributes written by friends and family members. No one mentioned a fiance and certainly no one mentioned Tanya anywhere. So he felt like he'd sort of. She told, she says that the whole family knew they were married. So. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Right up till the end, though, she did sort of forget whether he was husband or fiancé and she'd just sort of flip between the two, which people only sort of recognised when they looked backwards over her pattern of behaviour. Anyway, so he felt like he'd discovered this secret, but he felt like he couldn't say anything because by this stage, Tanya had become very powerful and she had already started ostracising people out of the group if she felt like they weren't 
easy enough for her to manipulate. Yeah. And she sort of continued to rise to prominence doing more and more public-facing activities and going at speaking at universities around the country and leading press conferences on behalf of the organisation. And she was smart enough to never actually tell her story directly to any journalist. So it was never put on the record. The journalists all just accepted that if this woman has been selected by this group to represent them and if they say that she's a survivor and she is a widow and she is their advocate, we will just trust that they have done the vetting and we'll just accept this. So her story was sort of loosely printed, but it was never actually directly told Mm. to them. Anyway, as famous as she was becoming, it still wasn't enough. She wanted total control of the group. And there was only a very sort of flat, non-hierarchical structure to the Survivors Network. Um, And it was just a few members of the board of directors, which she was Mm. on. But um, she felt like Jerry, who was the founder of the group, was a threat to her because she couldn't manipulate him as easily as she could manipulate the others. And so she yeah. organised a coup to get him kicked off the board of directors altogether. And then she invented a new structure for the organisation that made her the president of the organisation. <laughs> and a group that's never had a president before, she just went in and made herself the president of it. Which so this is where it's switching from you know what, she's making it up, but what harm is she doing because she's helping everyone to now Mm -hmm. it's gone to her head and here's where things get sinister because now she's actively hurting people. That's right. Yeah, she caused a whole new trauma for Jerry who lost this role and purpose that were really, really important to him. Anyway, the press started to get more curious when she was chosen to lead the first ever tour of the Ground Zero memorial site. And she did Mm -hmm. that with Mayor Bloomberg and the governor and also Rudolph Giuliani, who I have to remember to ask you, can you please do an episode on him? Because I'm sure that he has a fascinating backstory. Just the gist on Giuliani would be great. She did this tour and she was the star of the show as she was walking these three high-profile men around the site. She just refused to speak to any reporters directly, even though Mm. the journalists obviously wanted to know more about Mm. this mystery woman. Um, And it's so smart because the journalists are just like, oh, yes, you know, we've got to show her respect. She survived this thing. I go, oh, of course, you don't have to speak. You don't have to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She could tell it would be too risky to actually tell them. They did, a couple of them, though, start to get a little bit pushy. And this is where she realised that any time she wanted to get herself out of a situation, if she just freaked out and had a panic attack and started Mm. crying and shaking, all the other members of the group would just rally around her and get her out of there. They would come Mm. to her rescue if she had that sort of breakdown. And in particular, (laughs) a woman called Linda was sort of her main protector and bodyguard and ally. And Linda had seen these breakdowns more than anyone else. And this, I think, is potentially the worst thing that Tanya did in Mm. this entire escapade. She told Linda that her therapist had recommended that she start doing an exercise called flooding, which is like Mm. exposure therapy. Have you Mm -hmm. heard of this? Mm -mm -mm. Yeah. Yeah. So basically she recorded herself telling her very gory story of everything that happened on 9-11 mm-hmm. onto a cassette tape that she would then play over and over and over and over. But oh. she had to have a support person there with her and she chose Linda to be that support person. And it had 
even more gruesome detail in it, like seeing her own secretary be decapitated by a flying bit of sheet metal and people burning alive but being too badly injured to be able to actually move so that they were just mm. screaming out in agony. And she said that just, her. By the way, if you were getting legitimate treatment by a qualified psychiatrist for post traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. that is not something they would ever ever suggest you do. So that's just some weird thing she's made up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, flooding is a technique, but she clearly just read about it on the internet and thought that this would be a fun thing for her to try. Yeah, that's not, Mm. yeah. So for months and months, Linda was having to be with Tanya while she was listening to these tapes and watching her relive them. Exactly. So Linda reached a point where she just couldn't take it anymore. As much as she loved Tanya, she was having nightmares that were having a really, really negative impact on her life. So she said, Tanya, I can't do these exercises with you anymore. And this is an example of where Tanya would then completely lose her shit and started screaming at Linda, you are selfish. You're not a loyal friend. Don't you realize my trauma is so much worse than yours? You should be doing more to support me. You are a terrible, terrible person. Yeah. And even though Linda was copying all of this abuse from Tanya, she still stood by her. Mm -hmm. And that is part of why anytime Linda would see a sign of Tanya starting to break down, she would be the one to swoop in and Mm. rescue her. So now Tanya starts to get really cocky with her public image because, um, an opportunity sort of presented itself when this guy called Wells Crowther, who I mentioned earlier, the man in the red bandana, once his identity was discovered. So a lot of survivors had been telling the tale of how this man had come along and rescued them and helped get them to safety out of the tower and he would get someone out and run back in and help someone else and he kept doing that until he died. No one identified who he was for a couple of years, but, of course, Tanya had to make sure that she had inserted this man into her narrative and Mm -hmm. that she was inserted into his narrative. Um, The guy, by the way, Wells, he was a... um, equity or hedge fund or something finance worker. Mm. And, I remember um, hearing, he was, like, hearing about him in some documentaries about 9-11. Yeah. He was like yeah. quite a famous made, yeah. figure. He was one of the biggest heroes to yeah. emerge from the September 11th attacks. He saved 18 people and then he died attempting to save more people. So his family figured out who he was and then they heard about this woman called Tanya who was saying that he had also rescued her. So, of course, Mm. they wanted to meet her and hear from her directly how it was that their son had come to her aid. Um, She refused at first. She always said that she never wanted to meet with the families of victims because they said that they would always end up being mean to her because they felt like it was unfair that she had survived and they hadn't. Made no sense. Then she pivoted to telling people that she was just... Uh, she felt that it would be a cruel thing for her to put the burden of what she saw onto these families. So she just wanted to shoulder the burden herself, which made herself seem like more of a hero. Anyway, she finally agreed to go and meet with the Crowthers and they were very, very gracious towards her and gave her a red bandana of her own. And she sat there and ate a meal with them and looked them directly in the eye and told them a totally fake story Mm -hmm. about their son and how he had saved her. She 
continued to embellish it with saying things like she's kept the jacket that he used to put out the fire on her back and she was going to cut out a bit of the burnt fabric, mount it on some perspex and send it to them. She told them that she had a framed photo of him in every room in her house so that she always could feel safe by looking at his eyes. And they were... They were so moved by what she said that they asked her if she would please come and share her story at the unveiling of a memorial statue that they had commissioned in his honour. And so she accepted. She wrote this very elaborate speech that detailed all of her experiences with Wells. And then when the time came, oh, it's unbelievable. Um, She realised she couldn't do it at the last minute. And I don't know if this was out of guilt or shame or fear, but she Mm. put on one of her panic attack displays and made Linda go up and read it for her. (gasps) No. Yeah. That, though, was enough for New York Times reporters who were there at the Wells Memorial. Um, They wanted to find out more about this amazing woman who'd survived and was thriving and doing so much for the community and um, why didn't people know more? So a reporter called David Dunlap decided that he was going to write this piece and he approached Tanya. At first she said yes because she thought it was going to be about everyone in the group and there would be many subjects. Once she realised that she was going to be the focus of the feature, she freaked out and realised this is just going to be way too much scrutiny for me. So she started ducking and weaving and getting herself out of meetings and then she just flatly refused to speak to David Dunlap and started getting members of the network to call him up and saying, just drop the story, go away, she doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah. Of course, this all just intrigued him more and piqued his curiosity and everyone in the group as well sort of went, I don't know why you don't just talk to him. You're so comfortable telling your story. Why don't you just Mm. go ahead and tell him the story? But they just sort of accepted, okay, maybe her... PTSD is flaring up. Um, Mm. She realised she just had to escape and so she told Linda that another of her brothers had just died of cancer and said she had to go to California to be with her family for a while. She then just lay low for a couple of weeks until she felt like it was safe to re-emerge. But in that time, of course, David Dunlap just kept contacting other members of the network and finding out as much about Tanya as he possibly could and starting to do a little bit of fact-checking. When he was contacting other members of the network, were people kind of going, oh, look, I've thought this maybe, but I've not wanted to... Like, was this finally giving people permission to say that they thought... It's a mix. Yeah, okay. It's a real mix. Um, I'll let you know the documentaries that you can watch and you can see some people who are sort of like, yeah, I kind of had my suspicions confirmed once this all came up and then there are other people who say they were just completely blindsided and had no idea that any of this was in any way fabricated. And at the same time as all of this has been going on, Tanya had actually commissioned a documentary to be made which starred her and had the sort of other survivors as the supporting members of the cast. There is a guy called Angelo, I want to say Guglielmo. I don't really know how to pronounce it. Um, But he was a fellow survivor and he was also one of the volunteers with the Survivors Network and he was a filmmaker who'd already made a documentary about the 9-11 volunteers called Heart of Steel. And she 
pushed and pushed and pushed with him to make this documentary. And then she finally commissioned him and said, look, I will pay you whatever amount of money you want. And for the first time ever, she told her story on camera to him. So this process had been going on. She's losing it. She's losing it. This is like when they just, yeah, exactly like what happened with Belle Gibson. Yeah. Yeah. So arrogant because she kept Mm. getting away with it and getting away with it as she kept swinging bigger and bigger and bigger. So that is why there is all this incredible footage of her telling her story, these unbelievable lies directly to camera because she had no idea that was all about to be uncovered and she thought the source of truth was just going to be this documentary which she'd managed to maintain total control over. I want to watch it so badly. It's very good. (laughs) Um, I will share with you how you can um, experience that. All right, so with just this smallest bit of digging, David Dunlap discovered that even though she told everyone she'd graduated from Harvard and from Stanford, she'd never been to either of those places at all. Mm -hmm. She had never, ever worked for Merrill Lynch, and not only that, Merrill Lynch didn't even have an office in either the North or the South Tower of the World Trade Centre at that time. Oh, really? I thought I remember a lot of people from Merrill Lynch dying. Maybe it's just, I think, you know what it is, you know that thing um, where you are convinced you remember something? I think what it is is that a lot of investment bankers died and in my head Mm. when I think of investment banking, I think of Merrill Lynch and I think probably a lot Mm -hmm. of people do that so they just assumed... There is also the possibility that you've got that association with 9-11 and Merrill Lynch because there was another guy... Tanya is not the only person who has lied about being there and surviving mm. the 9-11 attacks. One of the most profile examples was a guy called Steve Ranazitsi. Um, He's a TV actor and comedian who told people for years and years and years that he was working for Merrill Lynch in the World Trade Center and he had just narrowly escaped. And he told this very, very publicly again and again and again. And it wasn't Mm. until 2015 that someone figured out, no, you weren't there and you didn't work for Merrill Lynch. And Merrill Lynch didn't even have an office in the World Trade Center. I'm wondering if he had actually just started piggybacking off her lie. That shows how people get away with it because, like, I said to you at the start of this, oh, yeah, Merrill Lynch is really famously connected with 9-11. Mm. Like, I was sure that mm. was true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So they didn't even have a thing in the building. Yes. Tell me more about yes. her. And she must so be he rich, just- right? Because how is she paying? Okay. Anyway, keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh Now, Linda, because she was Tanya's closest henchman, she was trying to deflect Dunlap as much as he possibly could, but she could only do so much. So she just started begging Tanya, give us some evidence that you were there. Tell us the name of the woman who you returned the wedding ring to. Tell us the name of the fireman who rolled you under the fire truck and saved your life. But... Of course, she would just start going into a panic attack and um, that would be her way of deflecting attention. Obviously, this couldn't go on forever. Luckily, before the story broke to the public, all of the Survivors Network did find out, which is good Mm. because she meant so much to them. One of the members called Janice organised to get an attorney for Tanya because she was very... She said she was very scared of talking to the Times because she wasn't a US citizen, so she wanted some legal protection. Janice said she would organise that for her, took her along to meet with her attorney. That attorney, within two hours, managed to 
unpick every single one of Tanya's lies, the lawyer called Janice in and said, look, here's the thing. She never worked for Merrill Lynch. She never met this guy called Dave. She actually has a totally different name. Meet Alicia. And she has never been to the World Trade Center Towers apart from going to the Ground Zero site. Wait, was Tanya sitting there when he said this? Yes. So she just admitted it all to this lawyer? Yep. And then they left. Janice kept calm, even though she was boiling with fury inside. She was shocked, obviously, but very pragmatic. And she how contacted was Tanya Linda, behaving? Probably just a little bit shell-shocked and erratic, and she then just went home. So they went their okay. separate ways. Mm. Okay. Then... Janice and Linda started doing what they had to do and contacting all the members of the Survivors Network. They started up like a phone tree so that they could all call each other and let them know that Tanya, sadly, was a fraud. How long had it been at this point? Uh, We're now in 2007 and Tanya had been telling this lie to Survivors since 2003. Oh, no. And this is all happening just after the sixth anniversary as well. Mm. So we're in... Right now, about the 24th of September, 2007. Oh, yeah. Um, they were all very resistant to finding out that this was a lie. She meant a lot to them and they weren't ready to let go of their leader and their mascot and someone who was a huge support to them. But they had no choice. They voted mm. and kicked her out of the Survivors Network that day, which was the day before the Times story broke and this whole Mm. thing became a global headline. And it was revealed that her name was Alicia Esteve Head and that she'd grown up in Barcelona. She had a very wealthy family. So to your point, yes, she did have a decent amount of cash. She pretended that she was working full time, but she wasn't working at all in the US. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, how else would she be able to commission a documentary and have a housekeeper mm -hmm. and she had to have money? Yeah. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. This was the type of family that sent their kids to Swiss finishing school and played polo and were part of the tennis club. And yeah, Yeah. Um, she was the youngest of five kids. She was the baby and had always been the center of attention. And they tracked down a bunch of her friends who all said that she was just like Tanya was generous and funny and very Mm -hmm. likable, but she'd always been a really terminal liar. And Mm -hmm. she was telling those sorts of stories like our friends were in high school, like Oh, I've got this boyfriend and he's so handsome and he wants to marry me. But then I've got this boyfriend and he's so rich and he wants to marry me. What's a gal to do? That's the thing with friends. Like, like I know with my best friend in high school, there was, you know, 80% of her was amazing. That's why I was friends with her. She was funny and cool and we had the best time and we were so close. So when she would tell these lies and they were obviously lies, I would ignore them for the sake of keeping the good parts. I'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, that's that weird thing you do where you make stuff up. But then we have so much fun doing all the other stuff. And so you kind of, and that makes them think that they're getting away with it. It's like, you're not getting away mm-hmm. with it. I just don't want to ruin our friendship by mentioning it. <laughs> you know, like I knew that I knew from when we were yep. 11 years old that you were talking shit. Yep. So, yeah. So, oh, God. And these friends did say that they learnt very early on if they tried to call her out on any of her bullshit, she would get very aggressive. She Mm. would turn hostile straight away. So they were just sort of conditioned, smile and nod and just let the lies wash over you. Um, She did an exchange program to the US when she was a teenager and she fell 
in love with the place that left a really deep imprint on her and she felt like that was where she was meant to be. Then in the late 90s, her father and her brother were embroiled in some sort of political scandal. They did some dodgy deals where they stole about 24 million euro from the Spanish government. Um, So the whole family got a whole lot of bad press. Tanya, oh, sorry, Alicia started to recede from all of her friends and family until in 2003, she had just completely disappeared from her old life and off she went to the USA where she built this new life as Tanya. Um, And when she got there, along with the new identity, she was able to find a community and a sense of connection that she'd never really had before Mm -hmm. as Tanya. She just discovered these online groups and she started researching the members as thoroughly as she could. And she memorized every detail of 9-11 and came up with this elaborate story. And that then became her ticket into this group. And It also became the ticket for her to then establish herself as their leader, which is something that she'd clearly always wanted because when she was briefly in the workforce, she was fiercely, fiercely competitive. Like people described her as savage. She was very ambitious. So she'd finally got everything that she wanted out of life. She was special and she was admired and she had people genuinely appreciating all of the things that she had done and she just assumed no one would ever unpick these lies and each time someone believed her lies it just gave her license to then tell another one tell another one tell a bigger one well because it is strange because at first you think well oh she was just lonely or she's just a bit odd and she found some friends and some connection And then you're like, plus she's helping people. So, I mean, what's Mm. the harm? But if you look at 9-11 like an industry, and it has really turned into an industry in that it's, you know, Mm. it's now there's the whole tourist um, thing around going to the memorial site and it's, um, you know, it's organisations that are deeply embedded in the government and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So if you look at it like that, she essentially was just climbing to the top of an industry like any other job. Like Mm -hmm. she was getting to the top of the company and Mm -hmm. that's gross. Yeah. Um, In one of the documentaries, one of the survivors describes it as a religion because people who were involved in 9-11, it has that sort of impact on their lives where it's something that they're constantly thinking about. It impacts the rituals that they perform on an Mm, annual basis. Um, And, yeah, she sort of built herself a position within that hierarchy. Yeah. Anyway. So the story broke and the day that it broke, Angelo, the documentary maker, came to visit Tanya and he was the only one that she would allow in. She obviously was devastated. He said, I really want to give you a chance to tell your true story. He deeply still cared about her and he said, I just want to give you a chance to tell the truth. And she said, yep, I definitely will, just not today. I'm too upset. And then she disappeared. We assume that she went back to Spain. We don't know for certain, but she definitely fled from New York and she was never at her apartment ever again. Every now and then over the next few months, she would send an email to members of the group that just said the word hello, hoping to get them to start interacting with her. But they all decided to just block her completely, which I think was very sensible. Mm. Then she started sending abusive messages to the Survivors Network group from anonymous email accounts that were based (gasps) in Spain that said things like, shame on you for not forgiving Tanya after everything she did for you. And then they culminated in an email saying she killed herself because of you. And you should all be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, no. 
Um, she and sucks. She really does. Oh, she Over the next sucks few, so bad. Yeah. Um, and like you said, you can sort of give her some leniency and sort of empathise with her position a little bit until you think maybe back over the, the manipulative shit that yeah. she did to Linda. Yeah. Yeah, like maybe at the um, start, sure, but then it seems like it, it just became maniacal and mm. gross and that that then I have no ambivalence at this point in the story. Yeah. I think she's a yeah. monster. Yeah. Yeah. Then began the recovery process of all the people that she had deceived, obviously, and that's going to take time. So when you watch the documentaries, you'll see that there are some people who feel a real sense of compassion for Tanya. There are others who are still filled with nothing but hate for her. Um, But one thing that they all can sort of agree on is that she brought something into their lives that did make their lives better by helping to build this network. Now, if you want to know more, because obviously we give you just the gist here, the Mm. story broke in 2007. I'll give you a link to David Dunlap's initial um, expose. Uh, Then in 2008, a documentary came out called The 9-11 Faker, which is on YouTube. So I'll share the link for that Mm -hmm. as well. Then in 2012, these are the really good resources. Angelo and another writing partner released a book called The Woman Who Wasn't There and also a documentary by the same name. Oh, I want to go watch it, like, right now. It actually does end in a way that's very good for Halloween season as well. So the very first... the very last shot in the documentary is when Angelo, just by coincidence, spotted Tanya in Midtown, New York, on the 14th of September 2011, just after the 10th anniversary. No one had seen her in New York at all, but obviously she couldn't resist but come along to the 10th anniversary. Mm. He spotted her on the street. He had his camera with her and he approached her and she just chased him off yelling at at him. And so the final shot is of her sort of looking aggressive and wagging her finger (gasps) at the camera and it's very much like a serial killer their eyes flashing back open yeah. at the end of the movie when you think they're dead. Like, is she going to come back for more? But also that moment where you see the real them. It was like um, yeah. uh, Ted Bundy. Everyone thought he was so charming and lovely and they couldn't believe that he was accused of all these things. And there was one moment during his um, uh, trial and there were cameras there and they caught him um, getting, like, furiously angry at someone and this look flashed Mm. across his face and everyone was like, oh, there it is. That's the Mm. real him, you Mm -hmm. know? So it's like that's the real her. Yeah, we got a glimpse of it. Yeah. Now. Where is she now? He then spotted. He spotted her once again in 2012 and this time when he tried to approach her, she just ran away. She didn't get Mm -hmm. involved in any conflict with him. Now. We don't really know. We do know that after the documentary came out in 2012, her employers in Spain at an insurance company fired her and issued a press release saying that Alethea Esteve had been um, let go. Um, Today she is on Twitter, but she has a private account. She's been on there since 2014. She doesn't seem to be trying to remain private. She is also on LinkedIn. So if you want to reach out to her to discuss future opportunities, you can get in touch with Alethea Esteve Head on there. I've never been professional enough to be on LinkedIn, so I don't. No. I haven't even had a resume in like 10 years. I don't, I wouldn't even know what to do there, but... um, (laughs) I want to go see if I can follow her on Twitter, though. 
Oh, yeah. See if she'll allow, if you can, you have to screenshot everything that you see and send it to me. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, man. That's crazy. So that is the story of one of many, many, many liars I've discovered in the research process for this. People make up these. Yeah, about 9-11 specifically. There's loads as well about the Holocaust, people just inserting themselves into a tragedy that they never experienced. Yeah. Why are people weird? Mm. I can't give you (laughs) the answer to that, I'm afraid. (laughs) Because they got their period. (laughs) Oh, man, that was a good one. I want to go watch that documentary right this second. Mm-hmm. It's worth oh, it. Nuts. Cool. So, what the woman who, what the woman who wasn't there. The woman who wasn't there. At the okay. very least, watch some trailers. I'll post some yeah. links to some trailers as well. Yeah, we'll put all the links in the show notes. And also, everybody asks. Um, oh, I forgot what you recommended this week. I, we put all the recommendations in the show notes too, so you can always go there and mm-hmm. find anything we've mentioned. But. Oof, I need to lie down. That was that was good. That was a good one. It's a heavy one. All right, honey. Well, till next week. We love our female love scammers. You. Until next week. Bye. Bye. Listener.